Welcome to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. It brings me tremendous joy to kick off a new season on this, the one-year anniversary of the launch of the Studs Pod. And if you were tuning in this summer, you heard my listeners, patrons, pals, and I reflect on the first year of this project. I launched a listener survey, published an audience Q&A episode, and hosted the third Studs Working Roundtable, all of which gave me ample opportunity to carefully consider where this podcast has been and perhaps where it should go. So I've got a couple big announcements for you. First, Studs is going bi-weekly. Look, I was committed to the weekly podcast. To be honest with you, I cherished the routine of it. But the survey results were clear. Something like 80% of Studs listeners said, Look, man, I dig what you're doing, but I just can't keep up. In the survey comments, one listener said that it's like having a subscription to The Economist, like where the appreciation for the product is only rivaled by the guilt induced by the stack of untouched or half-read editions in the bathroom. Loud and clear, I've been there. So we're going bi-weekly, which I hope will give my beloved listeners a chance to catch up and give more of my guests a chance to be heard. Another big change is that we're in line for two theme seasons. And while I fear I might miss my podcast careening from concierge to cardiologist, baker to bootstrapper, or surgical nurse to stripper from week to week, I relish the opportunity to take a few deep dives. This season will dive into the working lives of my esteemed colleagues in education. From primary years teachers to public intellectuals, I'll be in conversation with those who devote their careers to teaching and learning. And after the educator season, we'll inquire into the working lives of artists of various mediums. I'm not quite sure what might come after the artist season, but one day, not sure when, I feel firmly committed to doing seasons on, just for example, like the future of work, you know, having discussions with people under 30 about their professional expectations, hopes, and fears. And on the other side of that, I'm excited about a season reflecting with retirees. I've been bouncing around doing something with working partners, like a dynamic duos season, if you will. And at the Patrons Working Roundtable last week, which if you're interested in this podcast, you should definitely check out, one of our panelists, the esteemed studs patron Carl Hauck, proposed a season focused on workers behind the scenes of the arts. You know, costume designers, set designers, curators, sound engineers, choreographers, lighting techs, stuff like that. I think his proposal's got some legs. So many choices, none that need to be made now. But if you want to influence these choices, I've linked to the survey in the show notes. And you can always reach out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email, and I've linked to all of that too. Now, if you're new to the podcast, well, first, welcome, and thanks for joining in. 
And if you dig what you hear, please subscribe now. And if you want to catch up a bit, just go listen to the episodes that jump out to you as you scroll through your feed. But if you want some listener guidance, there are some clear audience favorites that emerged from the survey. Nurses Mike Merzinski and Kayla Ming both made the top 10, as do mailman Eric Spencer, stripper Drea Doré, concierge Julian G, television executive Richard Schwartz, firefighter Jason Danver, chef Courtney Burns, bootstrapper Justin Jackson, and the ayahuasca spirit guide Jocelyn Gonzalez. I'll post the audience's top 10 in the show notes. And if you've been listening to Studs for a while, and you've heard most of these episodes, if you've learned something and feel connected to these conversations, then let me give you a chance to give back. Head over to patreon.com studs and see what you can get for supporting the podcast. No pressure, but for as little as a couple bucks a month, you can help this project to thrive. And I want to seize this moment to thank a new studs patron, Antonio Gonzalez. Town and I work together in a restaurant in another millennium. He's not slinging steaks anymore, although I imagine he's still a professional smack talker. He's doing auto body repair in the godforsaken dystopia of Gary, Indiana. And he told me one day his wife picked him up to grab a bite during his lunch break. And they're sitting in a drive through line. And Studs comes up on her podcast feed. And to gently paraphrase Antonio... He said, Lazar, I swear I pooped my pants in the passenger seat. So his wife is a nurse and got turned on to studs by a colleague, and she's been listening for a while. Anyway, Antonio and the fellas at the shop became listeners. He reached out a few weeks ago and is now a studs patron over at patreon.com slash studs. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Antonio Gonzalez. Shout out to the folks at the body repair shop. I appreciate you all. And now listeners, look, I know this podcast intro is dragging on a bit, but I got to tell you this because this is just another one of these countless funky serendipities in Studs Podland. So to launch season six of Studs today, we have the honor of diving into the working life of Tamara Faber, who is married to one Antonio Gonzalez. Now, the podcast patron, Antonio Gonzalez, he's a smack-talking auto detailer in Gary, Indiana, where hope goes to die. Tamara's Antonio Gonzalez is a stand-up guy, a teacher, and a pillar of my community. And as you'll hear in this episode, Antonio is one lucky fella, because Tamara is a special person. So special indeed, that it is truly my honor to launch Season 6 with Tamara Faber, the elementary school guidance counselor at my very own John F. Kennedy School, Berlin. Tamara discusses how she promotes a growth mindset, guides healthy friendships, and fosters youth leadership. And then we explore her own leadership as a strong but humble voice for anti-racist education. Tamara is a deeply empathic and tirelessly supportive ally to young people. And in full disclosure, for that reason, she's something of a hero in the Lazar house. So join me in conversation with Tamara Faber. Tamara Faber, welcome to Studs. Thank you so much for being here. How do you describe what you do? Thanks for having me, first of all. 
I'm currently hired as the elementary school counselor at the John F. Kennedy School in Berlin. And as such, I support students socially, emotionally, uh, academically, um, working with students to feel the best that they can, to do the best they can at school. In addition to counseling, I support our pre-mediation program, our mentor program, our school, elementary school, student council. I support our equity team and our administration office and all things school-related, student-related, family-related. It sounds like a number of challenging, different, but intersecting roles. And I hope to discuss each of them with you. But before we do, can you quick walk us along your path to the guidance office? So I was born to a German father and a mom born and raised in Kentucky on Long Island, New York. My dad was self-employed. My mom was an elementary school teacher. A lot of what my dad did was volunteer work outside of his job. So I was always around my mom's work as a teacher and then my dad's work as supporting our community, either through our church or independently through organizations that he connected to in his work through our church. Um, So I was raised to be and look for helpers, and I think that is ultimately what led me to pursue the job that I have now. So perhaps in some substantial degree informed by your parents, both of whom were deeply committed to helping others, you decided to study education, right? Absolutely. So my parents inspired me. Uh, My mom's work in the classroom was something that I enjoyed doing. I volunteered as well in her class. And the special education interest happened when I visited my uncle in South Carolina as a a child and, and volunteered for the Special Olympics down in Greenville. And was really inspired to see the small, the really small things that made a really big difference. That's sort of where it started. So I studied special education, uh, specifically inclusion, at the State University of New York in New Paltz. We were a pilot program. From there, I worked in several settings, both public and private. Um, From there, I went into the Peace Corps, where I did some environmental education and teacher training, and then connected with a group called Los Pepitos, which was a nonprofit that supported families that were raising children with disabilities or special needs. Coming back from Peace Corps, I ended up working for several years in a district back in California, working in multiple positions in special ed as an inclusion specialist, as a uh, special day class teacher, as a special education learning center teacher, as an inclusion preschool teacher, and ultimately found my way over to Germany at the uh, counseling office at the John F. Kennedy School. So you spent more than a decade as a special education teacher, and perhaps before we get into your work as a guidance counselor, we should talk a little bit about your work as an educator, because I know that it very much informs what you do on a daily basis. So I have the sense that you and I got into education with a similar passion and with similar motivations. You chose the special education route. Can I just ask what the particular appeal of special education was to you when you were young and making these decisions? I think I really appreciated the the structure to special education in terms of 
goal setting, creating really specific steps that were measurable short-term and then long-term, and then really having the opportunity to track progress in a really specific way that I feel like is really difficult to do in a general education classroom with so many students with very different needs. Um, It's not to say that in a special ed lens, it's not as challenging or diverse. It gives you an opportunity to really consistently and constantly measure growth and be excited about the progress. I feel like there was so much more progress monitoring and so much room and time for celebrating accomplishments at a, at a smaller scale. And that was really rewarding for me. It was very focused. I don't want to say it made it easier. It's more suited for my style of teaching and working with kids, just taking those, those smaller steps and really focusing on clearer goals for individual kids. Yeah, and really being able to celebrate those steps with them, particularly in the younger years, right? You get to really enjoy with them the progress that they made. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'd come home, it would be exhausting, but I'd be able to go to sleep really, really soundly knowing that, you know, Johnny accomplished X, Y, or Z, or Sarah actually tied her shoe today, little things like that. Accomplishing things and being able to contribute and watching students assume that understanding of themselves is is so incredibly powerful. And it just makes it easy to go back to work the next day. Yeah. I know that so much of the effort in the United States then, and I imagine the same is true now, is towards inclusion. And you ended up being something of an inclusion specialist Can you talk a bit about what the role of an inclusion specialist is? So in the role of inclusion specialist in my former district, I was tasked with working to fully include as best as possible students with moderate to severe disabilities, whether it be a mobile disability, autism, anything that was considered moderate to severe. However, I I used that role to include everyone. So as much as possible, I I worked in small groups. I would include students that qualified as inclusion students. I worked with them in small groups with students that were maybe English language learners or had anxiety issues, being able to provide them with a small group for learning. And my role was also to train and work with paraeducators who were more consistently supporting these students in the general education classroom day to day and supporting staff with access to tools and resources to better be equipped to include these students in their in their day to day lessons. So I think a lot of people might not fully appreciate that a lot of your work as an inclusion specialist, of course, is working with students and trying to empower them and to support them. But so much of your work is also wrapped up in teaching the teachers and communicating with the teachers. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges of that side of it? I think I found the most important part of that work is to help build some level of empathy towards the work of inclusion. Going in as a young teacher right off the bat, 
you have these visions of this is what it can look like, this is what it's supposed to look like and feel like, and <laughs> yeah. then you get there and you're I, like, why? I had visions like that, yeah. yeah why uh-huh. isn't it working this way? And yeah. then it w- it became really apparent rather quickly that if if the staff that you're working to support don't really have the same understanding of why we are working to push inclusion, it, it becomes impossible. So a lot of my work was just building that empathy sharing the, the the why behind it. Um, so I actually did quite a bit of professional development with a, a former colleague. Um, we had these Saturday seminars once a month. So part of what I did during these professional development opportunities was use film. We used a documentary titled Including Samuel, which was created by a filmmaker who had a son that had cerebral palsy. And he documented his son's experience with inclusion through his elementary career, focusing on struggles as that the family has, uh, parents have, working with the sibling who's trying to support the sibling with special needs. And it, it focused also on the successes of the teachers and, of course, the difficulties that they had, including a student such as Samuel in their class. And having those conversations with our teachers, talking about what we can do, and when we have struggles, what can we do to overcome those? Yeah, and the struggles are quite real. I don't know if you know this part of my biography. I have this Uncle Dickie who just died a couple years ago at the tender age of 78, my father's brother. And Dickie had profound cerebral palsy all of his life. He was never able to walk or talk or feed himself. And uh, along with my father, he grew up on the west side of Chicago, And he went to a special school. It wasn't the neighborhood elementary school. And my father would bring him to school and he would wheel him through the Logan Square neighborhood. And I spent a lot of time growing up hosting bingo events along with my father for the Parents Association with Children with Cerebral Palsy. And it was just very much a part of my life. My uncle was part of my life. And then when I got my student teaching placement... I moved back in with my parents, which was humbling and challenging for all of the obvious reasons. And I had two students with cerebral palsy in the class. And I remember coming home from my first day, kind of excited to tell my dad that there were two kids with CP in my class. And he was aghast. He had no idea why kids who were never going to be able to walk or talk or, you know, function in a quote unquote normal way, why they would be in my high school history class. And I think that there's a really difficult discussion that continues to take place in American education and around the world about including people who face severe challenges. Would you be so kind as to talk a bit about what you learned in your years as an inclusion specialist about creating a space where everybody feels welcome and empowered and alive? Admittedly, inclusion is far more challenging at the high school, middle and high school levels. It's it's a much easier feat in the elementary school years, I think. The curriculum lends itself to it. The, the structure of the day-to-day class activities lends itself to a, a more successful inclusion 
experience for everyone. I can see, and I've heard many times, what your dad said to you, how or why, why are they there? And I just go back to the lessons learned of when I was a kid and the first time I had the opportunity of meeting someone that was nonverbal and was in a wheelchair. I remember that feeling of being anxious about not knowing what to do. And I, I, I clearly remember feeling ill-prepared to have an interaction with a person that was different than me in that, in that way. And I didn't want to ever feel that way again. I think it's important to give people tools or experiences that make it easier to be inclusive of everyone. That, that lesson is something that I try to pass on in my work as an inclusion specialist. Validate that, yes, it's uncomfortable, and then talk about why is it uncomfortable and why it doesn't have to be uncomfortable. And the conversation is, is the big part and, and not being afraid to talk about it. And I think in terms of inclusion globally, that's the hard part, but that's the work that, that needs to be done. Can you walk me through kind of the challenge of creating a language around inclusion? Because it seems to me that one of the pathways towards creating a more comfortable and welcoming space has to do with the language that we use, a language of openness and empathy. And when I have these conversations, I preface them by saying I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm a lifelong learner. I make mistakes. And if I don't put myself out there and ask the hard questions, then I'll never learn the answers. So through modeling that conversation, I think it's easier to develop a language together with whomever it is that you're working with, whether it's parents or fellow teachers, students, if you're having a conversation within a classroom, modeling that vulnerability of making mistakes and, and validating the global concern of what if I say something wrong or do something that may offend someone Say, you know, it's okay, and this is how we learn. We make mistakes. We may say a word that somebody will then look at you and say, uh, I can't believe you just said that. But if we don't talk about it and accept that mistakes are a way to learn, then where are we? Yeah. I love the idea of modeling vulnerability. I think it's really powerful. I think part of my role at JFK is is to do just that. And I think that's something that I bring is that I... I make it my goal to have a safe place for people to come and f- feel vulnerable and be okay being vulnerable. And I think that's what I bring to the school. Yeah, it kind of seems to me like you model vulnerability through humility, right? It seems like humility is at the core of your capacity to model vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah, stay humble. These are good days to stay I mean, humble. <laughs> so Tamara, you spent more than the first decade of your career as an inclusion specialist. You worked in special education. And I know that in part because of your humility, in part because of your vulnerability, you learned a lot. What did you learn about social and emotional development that you wish our listening audience knew? The timeline. I, I think the books indicate everything by months, years, where kids should be. 
And I think it's not as by the books as we're led to believe. And I think when kids have the opportunity to grow and develop at their own pace and are encouraged to do so, that's when we see the biggest growth. But when they're held to this norm and always compared to where they should be as opposed to where they are social, emotionally, academically, um, they get stuck. And then we have these anxiety issues. And I feel like that's something that is more predominant in today's age because of this need to stick to a schedule of development. And I think if we can just rein it back a little, pull it back and say, okay, to each their own and support and encourage all kids where they're at, I think that's where we'll see the most growth. Do you find yourself hopeful at all that the pandemic might have that effect, which is to say the schedule just got thrown off for, you know, a year and a half. We're not done yet. All of like the standards and the benchmarks that are measurable, (laughs) like they just can't be held to with the same religious fervor that we try to hold to them for a couple decades. Is it possible that like the special education model is just going to have to apply to all of us for the foreseeable future? If, if we don't do that, I feel like we haven't learned from the experience of the last year and a half. And I feel then we're doing everyone a disservice because special ed aside, all kids, all adults have gone through this together. And one of the biggest lessons I would hope we could walk away having learned from this is that we need to step back. We need to look at really what's important. And then we need to meet kids where they're at and help them get there. And sticking to the benchmarks and and the assessments that were allotted for this time of this year I think there'll be a devastating waterfall of chaos if, if for emotional health of kids, never mind the academic growth. I think there's a potential for just a real, real disconnect academically, social, emotionally, if, if kids are held to that same standard. Yeah. I mean, we have to fully embrace yeah. that mantra of meeting kids where they're at. Instead of dragging them towards standard B3A, because that's what we do in September, I right? I think that we need to relook at the standards. Oof. <laughs> Not that I want <laughs> to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, perhaps the collective trauma that we have endured will be the alarm bell waking us up to the obvious fact that the standards-based model, to the extent to which we use it as dogma, it has a real baneful effect on all students, particularly more vulnerable ones, right? Absolutely. So hopefully all of these so-called regular education teachers will, you know, (laughs) take some notes on this and apply some of the lessons that you've fought for and learned to their so-called regular classes. The passion with which you speak about special education and inclusion makes me wonder why it is that you chose to pivot kind of away from that and towards your current role as a guidance counselor. 
Uh, why the pivot? It's exhausting. Special education is exhausting. I love it, and I feel that I, I am still able to have a hand in it at JFK as special education in Germany and in the U.S. It looks quite different. So my role as the counselor at the elementary school at, at JFK is such that I maintain and and support teachers with a accommodation plans for students that may not qualify for special education services, but they have special needs nonetheless, whether it's dyslexia, ADHD, sensory motor issues. Um, and I work to support teachers with those more mild, moderate special education needs. So there's a little bit of both. Um, a lot of my work in inclusion was supporting students that really had limited social abilities. They really needed work on how to engage in conversation, how to incorporate themselves into play appropriately. So a lot of what I do now is is just a little bit different, but along the same lines, friendship, leadership skills, risk-taking growth mindset in terms of thinking positively, changing the way you as an individual process what you're capable of and how to learn what you haven't yet learned. So I feel like while it's, it's yes, a different title, there's a lot of overlap and it's, it's a little bit of a change of pace. And <laughs> a, a lot of the goals uh, in terms of setting goals and measuring things at small levels, I'm able to still do that. And I work towards that every day. So you had mentioned growth mindset, and I love the term growth mindset. And one of my guests on the first season of this podcast, she's a a fitness coach. She was talking about this book by Carol Dweck called Growth Mindset. And I was so inspired by what she had said that I picked it up and I gave it a read And on my best days, I'm a growth mindset devotee. Can you talk a bit about what it means to have a growth mindset and how you foster growth mindset in your work as a counselor? So many of the students that I work with, for whatever reason, have a really negative self-image, whether it's based on whatever's happening at home or at school. And where they're at when they come to me is I can't, I, I will never be able to, I'm not smart, I'm not good enough. And so much of our work and our time together is reframing those thoughts and those mental bricks that are weighing them down. And deconstructing what it is that 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 has really put them in this place of feeling just defeated all the time. So growth mindset uses this word yet. And that's something that we focus on and 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 teaching kids that yes, okay, I can't do this now, or I can't do this yet. And what can I do to eventually get there? So it's it's recognizing that yes, it's okay to not be able to do this now. And yes, it's okay to not be the best or even in the middle of whether it's my multiplication facts or whatever it is that they're feeling really down about. To take that and turn it into something that yes, I'm not there now, but with growth mindset, I can turn this into 
what I need to do to get there eventually and be okay with that. So how do you do that exactly? Can you walk me through the process of taking a third grader who comes to you every week and every week, let's say he comes to you feeling defeated, like math has got this kid down and then it's wrapped up in other things. It's wrapped up in friendships. It's wrapped up in support. He may or may not be getting at home. Kid comes to you having failed yet another math test, dejected, really feeling down on himself. How do you help to bring this young man towards a humble sense of optimism and a growth mindset? There's some curriculum out there that we work with. It's by no means scripted, but it's it follows sort of a step-by-step Yeah, walk me along the steps, will you? So we start by identifying things that we can and can't control. So what is in our means of being able to control and what can we not have? What do we have no say over? The weather and things like that. But I can control how much sleep I get. I can control the food that I eat. And recognizing that just in life there are things that we have control over and we don't have control over. We also find someone famous. We have some names that we can pick from or we can look for somebody that we're interested in and we look for their story. And I have them research their struggles and what they learned through those struggles to then say, hey, look, there's people that that have made it, that have had some pretty big setbacks and they were able to do it. So through modeling of some sorts. And then we work on mantra building. What is a mantra? What what is it what does it mean when we have negative self-talk and how can that change once we are changing the vocabulary in our own head? And then we go back to planning. Okay, so this is what we're feeling really not good at. What are the steps we need to take? We ladder it. What do we need to do to make sure we're moving in the right direction to gain the skills we need to be successful with X, Y, or Z? Can you give me an example or two of some of the best mantras that you've heard young people develop for themselves? So a lot of them are very simple. I can do it. And and then some are pretty special. I have one girl who, who her mantra was, I'm brave, I'm beautiful, I'm smart. And she'd repeat that in her head and I'd, she'd leave my office and she she seemed to be a new kid, at least for that moment. And yeah. even if we started over again, the next week, it was a little bit easier each time to, to believe it. Yeah. I mean, even if the mantra provides but a moment of relief, what is life if not an amalgamation of moments? So some of your work is working with kids one-on-one to help to like embolden their voices to say, I'm brave, I'm beautiful, and I'm smart. And some of your work is with groups of kids. I know that you run these leadership groups. Can you talk about what these leadership groups aspire to be and kind of how you navigate them? Sure. This um, was actually a joint start with a teacher a few years ago who came to me after parent-teacher conferences and said, you know, I just met with several parents of many of my girls who have recognized that 
their kids don't feel that math is for them. So it started off as girls' leadership. So it was something I, I created from the ground up in a very holistic way, looking at this group of girls struggling, feeling defeated by math. How can we, how can we encourage them to feel more confident, to take risks, to not be afraid to make mistakes? And I found this book. I believe his name is Ian Gilbert. It's called The Little Book of Thunks. And essentially what it does is it asks these questions that don't have a right or wrong answer. And I'd pose a question to the group and just let them answer. For example? One example of a question would be, if you're in a house and the windows were painted black, are the windows still windows? And having them process yes or no and why. And not interfering in their thought process at all, just giving them the opportunity to answer. And we did this because what I was finding is that kids were so stuck on making sure that if they were to volunteer or ask a question, it was because what they had to contribute was always right. It just prevents kids from taking risks. It prevents them from making mistakes and feeling okay with that. So... We preface this group by saying, there's no right or wrong answer. I want you to think of this absurd question, and I want you to think of your honest answer to it. And then they go back and forth, and then they challenge each other. And to watch where they were at the beginning, really timid, to then by the end of our four, five, six weeks together, just feeling this sense of assertiveness and empowerment to say, actually, no, I think this because this, it was just really encouraging. And we'd end our time together with them modeling this activity with their own class. So I would schedule a time with the homeroom teacher. They would go to their class, break them up into groups and and pose questions. Um, If you borrowed a million dollars and then... um, would you be considered a millionaire, like if you borrowed it? And then there's this give and take amongst these kids, and it, it's, it was pretty powerful. So through that activity, we, we worked on fostering these leadership skills through risk-taking and, and confidence-building, and it's fun. Yeah, it sounds fun. It also sounds, in so many ways, uniquely challenging I mean, it seems like a lot of your work is wrapped up in trying to empower young people who by their very status as young people don't have so much power. And my reflection on my childhood is very much steeped in that very real problem that I wanted to have power. And I was seven, so I didn't. And I wonder if you can talk a bit about how you navigate that problem. So our elementary school has invested heavily in in the positive discipline model of of working with kids. And the name sounds really scary. And to me, it's a little bit of a turnoff of a name. But Yeah, I've always wanted it (laughs) rebranded. I just wanted to rebrand it. Yeah, yeah, we use it at home, and we've read the books, and we've taken the seminars. But 
Yes. <laughs> but it's based on, you know, the, the ages old Adlerian and Dreikers theory of, of kids just wanting to belong. So as a staff, definitely at the elementary level, we've had a lot of training on it. And I've been certified to train parents and have worked alongside another trainer to support parents at our school with the same idea of kids just want to belong. And this mutual respect of wanting a say. So I feel like as a staff, we've, we've come a long way in recognizing that for kids to feel that sense of buy-in and that sense of contribution to a classroom community or at home um, within their households, part of it is giving that responsibility to them and letting them be part of the decision-making. And, but you're right, kids feeling the need to have some sense of power and say and input to what happens next because ultimately, when kids are having any sort of behavior, that's because they're trying to communicate a need that isn't being met. So I think through the, the, uh, the positive discipline model that our school is working to really embrace, I think we can support kids in, in feeling a sense of mutual respect amongst you know, their, their teaching staff and their classmates to where they can all con- contribute. At the risk of badgering you... Kids at a school don't really have a lot of power. Elementary school students go from class to class and teacher to teacher and topic to topic without much say. And I have the sense that that has a lot to do with some of the maladapted behaviors that young people exhibit. They're being institutionalized, largely against their will, perhaps against their better judgment. (laughs) And you, for all the right reasons, want to give them a sense of empowerment despite how little power they really have. It strikes me that that's a Herculean task. How do you do that? Baby steps. (laughs) And I think ultimately that's even what the... That's what those choices that we're giving them are as well. Like, well, you want to use this pencil or do you want to use this one? Like mm-hmm. any, any opportunity to push a, a choice for them it should be taken. Yeah. And Herculean, yeah. I, I, I vividly recall a, a question that came up at our one of our staff uh, positive discipline trainings with the trainer from London. We have a rule at the elementary school that in the winter, students must go out with their coats on. And the trainer asked, well, if a kid doesn't want to wear their coat, then okay. The point is that they would learn that if it's too cold, well, you made a decision to go out without your coat on, so now you're going to stay outside without your coat instead of... So, so letting kids learn through natural consequences hopefully better decision-making skills instead of being told what to do all the time. Okay, you you don't want to wear your jacket, then you won't be able to come back in and get it if you're too cold or are you clear on that. So kind of coaching kids more. And that was a big debate. A lot of our teachers felt strongly that that wasn't right, that as our role as teachers, we needed to tell them right from wrong instead of having them experience it. But I think through actually implementing this this idea of kids learning through experience, we've had some good success. And I think through these little 
little steps, we, we have an opportunity to make some good progress in terms of giving kids the sense of empowerment and the institution of, of school, public school. Yeah, so it sounds like, you know, you help to empower young people by actually empowering them one small step at a time. So hopefully they grow up to have power and wield it responsibly, right? Now, one of the most empowering things that young people can have is healthy friendships. And I know that a lot of your work is defined by trying to create healthy friendships. I think we all operate under this illusion that, you know, childhood friendships are innocent and that they're somehow easy. And I think that a lot of adults sort of look back on their childhood friendships through rose-colored glasses as though they were just innocent times. And perhaps that might be true for some people, but I think for most of us, we had to learn about friendship the hard way over and over again. And part of your work is to reduce the pain of that. Can you talk about how you help young people foster healthy friendships? goes back to validating that friendship and finding friends and, and making friends is hard. And it doesn't go without tears, heartache. Talking to kids about what their expectation and what their understanding of a good friend is, first of all, defining what it looks like and what it feels like, and then talking about what their real experiences are and differentiating between what they have an expectation of compared to what they're actually experiencing and, and just processing, talking through things. The, t- the tricky part is when we have two individuals who are friends and who are very different. It's sort of a love-hate relationship. They can't live without each other and they can't live with each other and they're stuck. And I think those are the hardest to navigate. Um, and I'm not sure if they're rooted in an anxiety of what would it be without them the fear of loss, the experience of loss. But those have been the most challenging. There's really no easy answer. I think the yeah. best thing is just to be an ear to listen and, and a voice to process with and reminding them of their own definition of what it means to be a good friend and what it feels like to be a good friend. Most of our listeners are grown adults. What do you wish they knew about friendships in elementary schools? Friendship problems are so normal. Our office hears a lot from parents that are really worried about cliques or mean words shared amongst really young kids. And it's, it's really common. So I, I just want folks to remember themselves as kids and those tears that they might have had on their, on their bedroom floor, wondering what it was that they did wrong, um, and just recognize that it's totally a process of growing up. I want listeners to reflect on the lessons they learned through those heartaches and hardships and how it helped them navigate future friendships as either young adults or now grown adults, that those experiences have helped them become the friend they are to the friends that they have surrounded themselves with now. Yeah. Sage advice. I think it's so hard for parents, myself included, because trauma is trauma, but we learn from trauma. 
And we all as parents want to minimize the amount of trauma to which our kids are subjected, but we at the same time want them to learn as many lessons as they can (laughs) while they're young. And therein lies the rub, huh? Speaking now as a parent of two teenagers, an 18-year-old is a typically developing girl getting ready to go to college, and the 15-year-old is a atypical kiddo really just trying to figure out who he is and how he fits in. Um, where I wear that counseling hat, special ed hat, and mama bear hat, I, I, I feel that, you know? Yeah. So putting on my parent hat for a second, I don't mind saying here at all that uh, my daughter has the honor of spending some time with you. And though she can't be here with us today, she had a question that she wanted to ask you. So here is the sometimes co-host of the Studs podcast with a question for you. Hi, Tamara. I have a question for you. What's the hardest part about getting kids in your office to listen to you and stay focused? (laughs) The first thing I have to do is relationship builds. I need the kids to feel that they are in a safe space. So we do that by building time into our time together to just have fun, making sure that I focus on what their interests and things that they like to do or are interested in doing are the forefront of our conversation for our first several sessions. And I pull from that information if I'm finding we're up against a roadblock and not moving forward, I'll tie it back to roadblocks. Isn't that the name of the game, I think? Or Minecraft or whatever it may be. And we play games, very low stress, a little bit of competition. You know, I like to to call myself the Uno champion of the White House and kids try <laughs> to claim that title from me. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think the hardest part is finding a balance between that relationship building and getting to the work. That's probably the hardest part. And, and in terms of keeping kids engaged, um, if they don't feel that they are comfortable in my space or that they can trust me as a, as a person, we can't even start and I won't have their attention. So building it around the kid. I hear you when you say that, and I know how difficult it must feel if you can't successfully create a space for you and the young person to engage wholeheartedly, but it must happen. And so I wonder if you could talk about what it's like when, for whatever reason, you and the young person can't manage to connect and develop trust. Yeah, and that has happened where I'm like, you know what, I've, I've tried this, we haven't connected, it's, it's not working. And that's where we look at other resources within our school, other adults that maybe have had success in creating those relationships. And then I work together with those individuals to help them provide whatever support they feel comfortable with. Because I'm not the best fit for everybody. And yeah. I've experienced that a handful of times. And it's it's really hard. Um, I think some of it is um, potentially a language issue, especially at the younger, the, the, the very young students that we have in entrance class, which is our kindergarten equivalent and first grade. Some of our German mother tongue students who really are tied to that social emotional language of German. Um, I think it could just be a comfort issue. I tend to have some success with working around that issue, but 
But when it's just like a personality issue, those are the hardest to swallow. And I just feel like I, I can't help. <laughs> yeah. On a loosely related note, intellectually, I fully understand that hurt people hurt people. And I also understand that kids will be kids. But I wonder what it's like for you when a student who is hurting people with some frequency comes to your office and you're aware that this young person is creating a lot of pain in the lives of other young people. I mean, I know you stay professional and you do your work, right? But how do you navigate your feelings around that and to create a useful language and a growth mindset in a kid who's been for some time been the cause of so much pain? What really needs to happen is that that student, that child needs to have an opportunity to really have a place to just reflect. And when we talk about kind of turning the table a little and asking them to sit in the seat of another person, and walking through, through that experience, I've had the most success with that. And I can't necessarily long-term say that it's been super successful, but at least in the moment to have that opportunity of self-reflection and taking a, a moment to recognize what it might feel like to have been on the receiving end of whatever it is that's happening is really important to do. And I think, again, allowing a student to come and feel that they can have that experience is it's it's that relationship building that has to happen. They need to feel respected and they need to feel loved and they need to feel like they belong to be put in that vulnerable position of saying, Oh yeah, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it takes time and it, it is hard because there are some kids that have made a reputation for themselves and, talking with them about how often a reputation will precede them in anything they do moving forward and and helping them navigate what they can do to change that yeah. and empowering them and changing their own narrative. It's like with teachers and parents having these hard conversations. It's, it's another hard conversation. You have lots of hard conversations, <laughs> don't you? Yeah. I yeah. hope this isn't one of them. It's, uh, <laughs> No, so far, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you meet people where they're at. You create a language around empowerment. You try to bring forth the better angels in their nature. And ultimately, what it seems to be that you're trying to do is to help young people to discover the best version of themselves. Yeah? And I think working with our staff or teachers in general, wherever I am, to just build an empathy around what is it like to be different, to experience life as different and and making sure that they are supported and feeling that they can make a classroom community that is welcoming. So two things are kind of striking me at the same time. One is the beauty of the project in which you're engaged and how you're wholeheartedly devoted to creating you know, space for people to be some version of their best selves. And then this other sense that I have that what you do is for that very reason, perhaps totally overwhelming, often utterly frustrating, 
and sometimes downright exhausting. Maybe this borders on the personal, and if so, please tell me if I'm pushing up to a boundary. But I wonder how you sort of grapple with the big feelings that you must have in doing this day in and day out. Self-care is kind of that. (laughs) Yeah. Something that I preach, and it's really hard to practice. I go in waves of making sure I'm taking time for myself, and I'm so thankful that I have a husband that is a that reminds me in a very calm, kind way that I have to remember to take care of myself. You know, self-care isn't necessarily binge-watching Blacklist on Netflix. It's Um, not? (laughs) I wish it was, because then I'd be doing great. Um, But that's something I still struggle with. But it was something that I've done over, especially over this... um, this lockdown experience is I've committed to to these online yoga writing retreats. So I, I I try to to really take time to just focus on what I need as as like a human living being. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of, you know, am I eating right? Am I exercising enough? Am I sleeping enough? Am I drinking too much? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um I hear you. And for the most part, you have your checklist of things that you know you need to do to stay healthy. (laughs) And for the most part, you do those things. And sometimes it's blacklist on Netflix. Absolutely. (laughs) Almost done. So I'm going to need a next binge watch series. We'll talk about that (laughs) soon. Um, But before we do, I don't want our listeners to get the sense that you're practice is limited to your office space, right? You spend a lot of time working with staff members and you've talked a bit about that, but you also spend a fair amount of time going into classrooms. Can you talk about what you do when you visit classrooms? Sure. Uh, It's threefold, I guess. So one, it could be individual, either observation or check-in. I sit in the back of the room and I'm taking anecdotal data tracking behaviors or how often is Johnny attending or not, and then comparing to a typical student in the class and comparing, is there a big discrepancy between what student A and student B is doing? Um, And then approach the teacher with whatever data I've had to then make a plan moving forward. It could be small group where I'm supporting a small group of students within a class or whole group, whether it's in the lower elementary, we work with a curriculum called Second Step, which is focused on respect and empathy, or the older groups, third through six, doing peacekeeper circles, so classroom meetings and talking about what's going really well and what's maybe not and how we can advocate for ourselves and maybe some hurts that I've experienced over the past week and really working to build that classroom community alongside the classroom teacher. So any one of those I'm most interested in peacekeeping circles. Not that you invited me to ask, but here I go. (laughs) Talk to me about peacekeeping circles. Okay. So we start every peacekeeping circle by literally putting our chairs in a circle and then going over our, our norms for the next 30 to 40 minutes, which include, you know, confidentiality, keeping things current, making eye contact to who we're talking to, um, using eye statements, talking about an action and behavior, specific action and behavior. And then we pass a talking piece around, essentially. It could be anything. 
Uh, it could be a stuffed animal. It could be a ball. It could be a pencil. And remembering that when we have the talking piece, we are talking. And when we don't, we're listening. So listening and speaking from the heart is one of our norms. And students have a chance, depending on where we are in the process of developing these peace circles, we start always with just thanks and appreciations, keeping it very positive. What has someone done for you over the past week that really made you feel good? Then we introduce hurts and concerns, and we talk about maybe something that happened that made us feel pretty hurt. And then once we've done this for a little while, we, we learn how to make thoughtful apologies, if needed. We teach kids through sentence structures to keep it very, um, we want to make it a safe place. We want to make sure kids are using language that isn't accusatory or doesn't doesn't target somebody's personality. It's really focused on how you feel because we talk about how we can't argue with how someone else feels. That's something that we can't evaluate for someone else. Yes. So the whole purpose of starting with the thanks is an appreciation is to then reflect on how it felt to have someone thank you for doing something that you might not have taken notice of. And there are little things like, you know what? I got to school in the morning feeling really bad because my little sister was sick and the dog kept me up all night and my dad just lost his job and I was feeling really bad. And I walked onto campus and you waved and smiled to me. So thank you for that. And that just sets a tone for, wow, my wave and smile made a difference. So we go through a few rounds of this, and kids are feeling really good about taking care of one another. Yeah. And then, then we go into the hurts and concerns. You know, I was walking down the hallway. I dropped my books. And all four of you, and we, we named them, walked by, and you actually laughed. And that, that hurt me, that you didn't help and that you laughed. And then we talk to them about what they would like to see next time. So the, the next part of that hurt and concern would be next time. It would be really great if instead of laughing, either you just walked by or you helped me pick up my books. So kind of structuring how to have these conversations when somebody does something that might be hurtful. And then the apologies are just as, as structured. Like, you know, you, I recognize that maybe when I took the ball from you and just started playing basketball without asking that that really bothered you. I just want to let you know that I'm, I'm sorry that I did that. And fostering these kinds of conversations to happen almost naturally later. You know, we do it very structured in these circles, maybe two, three times a month, four times if we're lucky. Yeah. And then what's really great is being outside at recess and hearing these exchanges happen completely naturally. Mm. You know, I really didn't like that you did this. Next time, can you do this? And then there's this back and forth about, all right, this is how I made them feel. And I really remember how I felt when I made them smile. And I'd rather have that feeling again. So that's sort of what Peace Circles are all about, creating this classroom community to have these conversations. Yeah. Because I'm very interested in the peacekeeping circle ideology, really, and the methodology as you've described it, I wonder what you do in a case where a student rightfully claims that another student transgressed in such a way that all of those in the circle realize that they did something really nefarious, really mean. Susie says to Johnny in front of everyone, fifth grade Susie says to Johnny, you called me a slut 
right? There's like this really mm-hmm. toxic slur. A bunch of fifth graders are now having to grapple with this. Johnny is riddled with shame, humiliation. He's been called out. You could probably hear a pin drop. I understand how these circles can work really effectively when we're talking about, you know, I dropped my books and you were there for me. I also believe that the peacekeeping circle can work in a much more difficult conversation like the one I described. Can you talk a little bit about the difficulty of negotiating a peace circle in that sort of hyper tense, toxic situation? Without that same word, and we've had similar circles, and they're hard. And it goes back to recognizing the power of our actions. And, and, and that's why we, we are specific in talking about the action and not the person. Right? So yes, Johnny said it, but it wasn't... It was, it was the word that was used. Yes, he said it, but we're talking about the word. And kind of... I don't want to say separating Johnny from the word, but to keep it a safe place for Johnny, reminding kids that, yeah, we're talking about the specific action. So this clearly made Susie feel hurt, angry, and focusing on how our actions have consequences. And when we have a class full of cheerleaders for building this strong community, we're going to have people looking out for how we treat each other and normalizing it that way, that yeah, it hurts to be called out. We're not calling you out. We're calling this action out and bringing it back to that. I guess why I brought that example up and chose that word is because I would have the inclination to want Johnny to feel shame because I think that shame is powerful. But I also realized that shame is so powerful that it can engender the opposite effect we might want it to have. So what Johnny's trying to do is to, in some way, shame or otherwise other Susie, right? In the peacekeeping circle, to what extent do we want Johnny to feel ashamed? We want Johnny to recognize that what he did made somebody feel bad. And in hearing it publicly, shame, feeling bad, we want him to feel that this is not something he wants to experience again, whether it be shame or anger that it was brought to the light of the whole class. And there's been classes that I've gone to where there wasn't just Susie. There was Susie, Mary, Joey, Bobby, all having something to say about Johnny. And we had to go back and add a norm that said, what's a fair number? What do you think? How many times can somebody's name be said in a hurt and concern before we just need to know that, okay, we've, we've made it clear that this week wasn't a stellar week for so-and-so. And in most cases, the kids come up with three. I don't know why that's the magic number. So the intent is not to leave somebody feeling really hurt. The, in, the intent is to feel somebody feeling that their actions had a consequence that they can otherwise change in future interactions. They have the power to have a different outcome based on their own actions. Yeah, it sounds like a really powerful engagement, these peacekeeping circles. So Tamara, I could sit and listen to you talk about peacekeeping circles forever. I'm deeply interested in the peacekeeping circle 
philosophically, practically, and otherwise. And as you say, the peacekeeping circle is being used to promote a more positive environment, to promote a more welcoming environment, to promote a more empowering environment at our school. Outside of the peacekeeping circle, you're seeking to do the same thing by actively promoting anti-racist education at the Kennedy School. You're doing so as a path to, to empathy and as a path to equity. Can you elaborate on the role that the guidance office plays in promoting anti-racist education? To break down barriers, to ensure that all kids, no matter where they're coming from, can show up to school every day and feel that they have a place where they fit in and where they can succeed. Part of it is breaking down these barriers that are they're institutionalized everywhere. It's, it's not a JFK problem. It's, it's an international issue. Before we can break down barriers, I think part of my work is to first help our community understand that there is an issue in the first place. So having conversations to talk about expectations, understanding experiences, what are they for you as a teacher at our school or as a parent at our school or as a student at our school, collecting voices, collecting stories to say, this is where we're at. Now, where do we go next? So building that empathy towards the issue of inequity, showing that racism, although maybe not blatant, is is something that we need to grapple with at JFK. And I'm going to preface this by saying we don't take data on our community in terms of race, ethnicity. We, we just don't do that. Right. It's tied to potentially the data protection and, and just the norms of, of how Germany functions. It's, it's a non-topic. So having come from the U.S. where everything is driven by this data, you can't take a standardized test or fill out an application without indicating your race and ethnicity. You can opt out of answering it, but it's a question we are very familiar with. So we don't necessarily have data to show our statistics in terms of our makeup of our community. But anyone can walk on campus and recognize that we are majority white Yet my first year in the counseling office, 16 of the 20 students I was working with regularly were non-whites. Oh my. It didn't sit right. And um, I spoke to our administrator at the time and I said, something is not right here. And at that point he made an active effort to try to recruit and hire a more diverse staff. And he thought it would be important for us to do that. And I think it was really helpful. So we brought on some administrators, some some teachers um, that are not white. And I think that is important for kids of color to see that there are people in their day-to-day community that are doing great things with kids. So that's sort of where my my tiptoeing into this this work began when I saw that we, we need to address why this is, why is this happening? Why is 80% of my caseload non-white at a school that without the data to prove it is probably 80, if not more percent white? So this was again five years ago in my conversation with the administrator at the time. And, and since then, it's always been at the periphery of the work that I've done is, is ensuring equity and equitable practices for all kids that support everyone. And then was it last summer? 
in the wake of what happened um, in the U.S. with George Floyd, there was this international movement, this political movement of, of recognizing that we have work to do. And I was noticing that we as a staff, there wasn't really anything happening. But as a German-American school, I felt, hey, we need to, we need to do something here. So I, I started talking with a handful of teachers, both at the elementary and high school, and said, what, what can we do? Let's get a book study. Let's, let's do X, Y, and Z. We had these grand ideas of what we could do to send our teachers off over the summer with, with work to do to become anti-racist educators when we returned and when, when we quickly had to put the, the brakes on and say, wait a second, as a bicultural school, German-American, it became apparent very quickly that we are at very different understandings of what the issue is and our vocabulary around talking about these issues is, is very different. So we backed it up and we, we had just a voluntary opportunity for teachers to get together. It was literally the last week of school from 4 to 6 p.m. Anybody wants to come and have this conversation about anti-racism at JFK was invited to come. We had 28 staff members show up. And it was essentially data collection. We, we posed 12 questions asking for teachers to indicate their answers on Post-it notes, which were then hung around the room everyone to look at later and look for similar or different perspectives, look at what we as a school would need to better address what we were taking in. Some of the questions were, what is racism? What is BLM? What is white privilege? How has your identity impacted the way you plan and teach? How has the identity of your students impacted the way you plan and teach? And having these conversations around racism, race, anti-racism, in the context of the work we do at JFK with kids and our community. And it was really eye-opening for, for everyone to see the vast range of perspectives that were shared. And the response to some of the questions that were asked, some teachers when asked about how their identity or the, the identity of their students affected the way that they taught and planned was mind-blowing. They had never considered it. And then you have the teachers who consider it every day based on their own experiences and their own development as educators. And we then said, we need to continue this conversation. So the idea of this initial opportunity for teachers to come together and have this opportunity to talk about a difficult topic was really a mirror image of what we were doing in the classroom with our peacekeeper circles. We were creating a safe space by talking about norms Agreeing to non-closure, understanding that we're going to start a conversation about a topic that is pretty taboo and to this point at our school, and being okay with making mistakes within the process, being vulnerable to our own biases, and sharing those with others in a safe place. So part of it is just creating a safe environment for these conversations to happen. Is it infinitely harder to do that with adults than it is with students? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not because it's difficult. It's because I feel more challenged by that task. I feel it's easier to do it with young minds. But when I'm surrounded by people that I work with daily yeah. and that I respect immensely, I, I feel that I am more vulnerable with 
my colleagues as opposed to the students that I'm working with. So I was not happy about <laughs> taking on the role of the spokesperson at the beginning of this, but I did it because the group of folks that I was working with didn't want to do it as they were non-whites. And for me, that was really scary. It still is. I didn't want to do any injustice to the work we were trying to move forward, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. And I think that goes back to the humility that you bring to your practice, right? I know that the conversation around race and identity at the Kennedy School is going to be ongoing, but I would like to posit that you've been successful, quite successful indeed, at generating conversation. And I think you should be really proud of that work, and I hope that it's satisfying to you. And while it is but a part of your work, we both agree that it is a critically important part. Indeed, it's one of the several critically important hats that you get to wear on a given day. And I wonder if, given the number of hats that you have to wear, given the number of plates that you need to juggle, I wonder if you could paint a picture for me of a satisfying work day, right? Like, this is my podcast about work and working. <laughs> you have so much to do that it seems impossible to even, like, suggest that there's something like a work day. <laughs> I don't know if it has definitive beginnings and ends, right? I know you must bring much of it home on your shoulders at the very least. But what does a satisfying work day look like and feel like for you? It's funny because I think of what it might look like. And then as I'm thinking of saying it out loud, I think of how I've had other days that don't look like that, but have left me with a feeling of, accomplishment. So uh, initially, my thought around that question is that all my scheduled meetings, either with students or teachers or staff, go on as scheduled. I'm able to follow a schedule in which I see who I'm supposed to see get into the classrooms I'm scheduled to get into. And it just works. Yeah, there's no house fires to put out. Like you can just go through the day as planned. There's something satisfying about that. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. When I say that out loud, I think about some of my best days were when I had those house fires that totally threw a wrench in my day. And and I ended up doing something that I couldn't have ever foreseen doing and then just feeling really accomplished at the end of the day. We did it. (laughs) We took care of it. So it's, I don't know. (laughs) I guess I ask because I can imagine two scenarios being equally possible. One is that you leave the confines of the school feeling a sense of, let's say, humble pride that you're doing good work, that you're meeting people where they are, that you're helping to create a more empowering, safe, but challenging space. And that you can kind of give yourself an girl, pat yourself on the back on your way off campus. The other side of that, of course, is that the work that you do never ends. And I wonder if it's hard to develop a bona fide sense of satisfaction when there's no end and no end in sight. And I think the tricky thing is, too, when I look at it through that lens real quick, is the ratio that's suggested for school counselor to to student body is one to 250. 
and I'm looking at well over 800 students that I that fall under my care, so to say. I feel sometimes that I'm just treading water. That there's there's so much that I could be doing, and going home feeling defeated is something I try not to do because I can't do it all. Yeah, well, the cards are stacked against yeah. you, one one to eight hundred. Yeah, so um, just focusing on the positive and all the kind of like the special ed goals that I was talking about in the beginning. What led me to special ed? It's those little pieces. Like, how can I just measure what I've done in small little chunks? And that's how I approach what I'm doing now. Is what have I done today? And I can just be happy with that. <laughs> Well, I think that there's something really powerful in that. I remember some time ago reading this book by Helen and Scott Naring, and they were successful entrepreneurs in New York in the 1920s, I think. And they they helped to pioneer the back to the land movement. They left New York and they moved upstate and they bought a farm and they and they sort of chronicle in this book, The Good Life, how all of the things that they thought made them happy were illusory at best. And that ultimately what the good life is, what makes us happy is having a systematic plan of attack, having clear, concise, precise, measurable goals and assiduously working towards those goals for most of us, preferably with other people, And that's happiness. That's a satisfying day. I think a lot of our lofty ideas and ideals about happiness, you know, vis-a-vis spirituality and otherwise are really misguided. Like it's really unromantic that work, right? Work based on a plan that we set for ourselves should make us happy. But there's a lot of data to support it, despite how unromantic it may be. And so I have a podcast about working. (laughs) Um, I hope that you find some satisfaction from your job. I admire you. I admire what you do. And I hope that you can find moments to, despite how humble you almost always are, I hope that you find some satisfaction in it. But I know that there's another side to it as well. And that actually tees up the second question that I have from... My dear daughter, who, if there is not a current sitting president of your fan club, I'm sure she would like (laughs) to be that very person. And she asks this question. Hi, Tamara. I have another question for you. I hope you don't mind. What's the hardest situation you've ever been in in your work? Oh, Madeline, that's a hard question coming from you. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to my world. Uh, Yes. Yeah. You know, dealing with the hard stuff, like those things that we tell kids at the beginning of our time together, that I am a secret keeper except when, I'm a secret keeper except when you tell me that either you are getting hurt, you're thinking of hurting yourself or someone else, or someone's hurting you. Those those are the hard hardest days when I'm confronted with a student who says, you know, I'm, I'm done with being me. I'm done with wanting to live. And then having to navigate that conversation further and including the right people and having the space to share their hurt and let them know that they're not alone. And those are my hardest days. Fortunately, they don't happen often, but they, 
they happen. They happen. Yeah. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say that those young people who share with you their most vulnerable thoughts and feelings, they're lucky to have you. And I know that there's a lot of kids at this school, there's a lot of the families who are really grateful for your support, your reliability, just being there, being fully there. But still, I'm sorry you have to go through it. And sharing that with me should be enough, but I'm hoping without being a total ingrate, uh, you can ride along with me as we drive this train into the station. I'm hoping that you can share with me this story of one professional triumph and one professional failure. And if we could start with a failure so that we can end on a note of triumph. Well, the failure is something I feel like I'm still navigating and learning from. And it's this art of making assumptions. I'm still recovering from assumptions that I've, I've made early on. And I've, I've learned to not assume. And I'm going to be really vague due to confidentiality, but it, it, it covers the, the spectrum of, of a diverse range of, of experiences for me in this line of work. One being just assuming that both parents talk to each other. And when I have a conversation with one, that the assumption that they're talking about what we spoke about isn't always the case. So assuming that I know the whole story and acting on the information that I have um, has been a hard lesson on more than one occasion. So um, lesson learned. Yeah. Can I ask you about that, though? Because in your work, I don't know how you could not consciously or otherwise try to fill in the holes in the story in order to create for yourself a picture with which you can work, that seems like an impossible problem. Like you don't want to make assumptions and that's very wise of you. But it's like, how could you not on some level? I still have to, but I need to slow down and give myself the time to do a little bit more work a, a little bit more detective work so to say yeah and i need to afford myself that time to better inform my next steps forward and i didn't always do that yeah that seems impossible <laughs> no it's really hard right yeah well look i think we all suffer from making way too many assumptions the only difference is that you're wise and graceful enough to Call yourself out on it, <laughs> and kudos to you for it. Give me the story of triumph. So I look back at, at this Herculean task of moving this equity movement forward at JFK, and I, I have to thank my young self for jumping into the professional development opportunities I put myself in charge of back in the day um, and having hard conversations about inclusion and and working to support all kids and finding a spot where they can excel and bringing that to the class community and celebrating the small victories, having those experiences of providing professional development on differentiation and inclusion has given me 
the confidence to sort of take the reins of our movement moving forward at our school to have these conversations about equity. And I'm still terrified of the work ahead. You know, there's always pushback. There's always, we're not ready for this. And at the same time, when are we ready? Um, I think, again, it goes to modeling. If we can model how to communicate respectfully with one another as staff, we can then foster that same energy and that same ability to communicate between teachers and students in the classroom. And then that will just naturally trickle down to how kids treat each other. So I, I hope to keep pushing forward in a really positive, encouraging way with the equity work at JFK. And that's something that I'm I'm happy to be a part of. You can be proud of it. It's okay. <laughs> I know it's hard, but I know it's hard when your humility touches noses with your pride, but you can be you can be proud of the work you're doing to promote a more equitable and safe place at the Kennedy School. Indeed, I would go so far as to say that despite or perhaps because of your humility, you should be proud of the work that you do. It saddens me to think about the school without you. You've done so much to make it a better place for everyone. You are something of a household hero at the (laughs) Lazar Fleming house. My daughter could not be a bigger fan. And for that reason, among others, I'm a big fan as well. So thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. You've been a splendid guest and I enjoyed every second of it. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. I told you, Tamara Faber is a special person. It was such a joy to be in conversation with her. All right, so subscribe and leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you and you have the means to give a few, please consider supporting me over at patreon.com studs. And remember, like I said, we're going bi-weekly, so I won't catch you next week. But I will be staying in the elementary school, so I hope you'll join me in conversation the week after next with early years classroom teacher Kate Mueller. She's awesome. You got a lot to look forward to. Until then, please stay healthy, stay well, take care of yourselves, and I look forward to being with you soon. Hey, Madeline Rose Lazar. Yeah? You know Tamara pretty well, right? Yeah, I do. And you're pretty fond of her. Is that indeed correct? Yes. If you could tell Tamara anything right now, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Tamara, you're the best. One of these days, I really am going to buy you ice cream.